Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. We're in the middle of a series called Empower. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how we can empower both men and women. But we've been concentrating a lot on how we can empower women in ministry. We've been talking about the difference between a complementarian and egalitarian view. And we as Sam Alliance land a little more on the egalitarian side. And so we've Put, kind of put together a biblical basis for, for why we believe this. We've gone into the classroom and we've learned some new Greek words. I know you all have those memorized. You're all set. And we've also just looked at the context of who, who these writings were for and what was going on in those cultures, in those contexts at the time that they received these letters. What I've loved about the last couple of weeks is the way that we've been able to have this dialogue of empowering women in ministry, and and in no way are we pushing men down. I love that we're empowering men as well, and that's how we want to continue to have dialogues. When we talk about empowering one group, we want to be empowering both, all groups at the same time. A lot of times our culture tears down one to empower another, but we know as children of God that there's a better way. And so today we continue in our series on Empower. And this week our topic is singleness. Our topic is singleness. Now I want you to know that if you decide to attend RTI, which some of you probably should consider doing, one of the first classes that you'll get is a class with me. And in that class we're going to go through a bunch of assessments to help you become more self-aware as a person. And so one of those assessments we take you through this Johari, this Nohari window, and you realize that there's actually things that everyone knows about you but you don't realize yourself. And it's a horrible moment when you realize that that is true. And there's this thing called self-awareness. And I've done this test many times. And though I'm not the most self-aware person in the world, I am self-aware enough to understand that I am a married man giving a message on singleness today. And I hope you understand that I'm actually comfortable with that. And I hope that someday in the near future, we're going to have a single communicator up here giving a similar message But today, I want you to understand that while this message is on the topic of singleness, it is not just a message for those that have that status. Today's message is a message for us as a church family, both singles and married. And I today have some important things to say to actually those of you in this room that are married about the topic of singleness. So please, if you're married and you're here today, don't tune out. This message is as much for you as the singles sitting in the row with you today. In preparation for this message, I did a lot of research. I read a lot about what theologians say about this topic. I read a lot of blogs on what single Christians are saying and what the church needs to understand. And I had a lot of time that was spent with my single friends, interviewing them, asking them questions. And as a result, as we talk about this topic today, many of the words that I'm going to share with you are not my words. They're the words that my dear brothers and sisters in Christ who are single shared with me over coffee, over emails over the last couple of weeks. One of the main questions that I've asked everyone that I met with was this. What do you feel the church needs to know and understand better about singleness? I learned a lot. I've been convicted myself a lot over the past couple of weeks as I prepared for today. Some of the major things I realized, one of them, I realized that the number of singles in our city and our country is on the rise. And it is actually quite a large demographic. It's important that when we talk about singles that we understand who we're talking about. 
We're talking about those who have never married, those who are divorced, those who are widowed. We're talking about single moms, single dads. We're talking about those that are 23, 35, 70. It's a very large demographic. In fact, I did a little bit of studying, and I wanted to know how many singles actually live in the city of Salem. And honestly, when I I started to do that, I kind of just forecasted, I think it's probably going to be about 35, maybe 40% of our population. And I honestly thought that was going to be kind of high. Can I ask you, how many singles do you think, in your mind, come up with a number. What do you think the percentage of singles that live in the city of Salem is? What I found is that it's actually over 50%. Here's a graph. This is from our census. Right? It's actually about 50.4%. 83,030 people in Salem are single to about 82,700 that aren't. I was surprised by this. I don't know if you are. Maybe you're better in touch with our, our, our city than I am. But I was surprised by this. And I looked at our national average and I realized really quickly that actually we're right in line with the nation. Last year was the first time in the U.S. that those who are unmarried outnumber those who are married. Adults, those over 21. And so I realized that we're talking about a really large demographic. We're actually talking about the majority. The second thing I realized in preparing for this is that as I interviewed and talked with people and received emails back, I realized that though many of us do a pretty good job and we know what it means to love our single brothers and sisters and we make them feel like part of our family, there are many in our community who aren't sure how to relate. Many who have kind of an incomplete view of singleness. And we as the church, unfortunately, are not exempt in this. In fact, at times, we're kind of the worst. I found a church community group called Pears and Spares. (laughs) I, I, like, would you want to go to that as a single person? And I'm lying. Actually, I found eight church community groups called Pairs and Spares. It wasn't just a one-off. And so singles, while you are the new majority, it would seem that society, culture, even the church, their view towards your single status is a bit lacking. It's a bit misinformed. And that's why we're having this conversation today. Chris Beckert, who happens to be a single pastor, writes, whether looking to the culture to their church experiences, or to other sources for a hint of advice. Those who hold a single status hear from multiple people, from multiple sources, that they are not full people until they find their better half. We're told to wait, yet we are not validated before we fit an expected model. We go through lots of lonely Sundays. Singles, let me start right here at the beginning and let you know that you are not a problem to be fixed. You are not a person to be set up. You are not incomplete or lesser in any way. You are not second best. The truth is, you are whole. You are complete. We are equals. You are blessed, and you are a blessing to us as a family. Today, it is my hope to take a look at the word of God and see what it says on the topic of singleness. It is my hope that we can see that this portion of our family should be empowered. I want to empower our single brothers and sisters among us here today in their identity and in their purposes. I want to begin by walking us through a narrative of scripture and attempt to build a theology of singleness here this morning. 
I believe that a theology of singleness will make us all better. It'll help us clear up some misconceptions that we might have towards the status of being single. single. And I believe that it will also empower us to treat one another properly in the ways that God intended. You see, in the Old Testament, marriage is the deal. We see this in the Old Testament. See, God is speaking through this culture, and in this culture, marriage is central. But also, we see very clearly in the Old Testament that the way that God expands his people is through childbearing. The people of God grow by having kids. And we see this. We see this all throughout. That's how they expand. Genesis 15 begins this concentration and this topic. And we see Abraham. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. God is beginning to build his people. And he's beginning to build this inheritance, this this group of people. They're related, this genealogy. And so singles, singleness isn't even on the scene. It's not even really an option. It's not on the radar screen. And neither is disciple-making and evangelism. They were not the primary ways that the people of God expanded and grew. It was through childbearing. It continues on. It's a really important thread through the Old Testament. We see Isaac struggling again, and God gives a similar promise in Genesis 26. We see this built up again in Ruth. The story of Ruth is about her having this inheritance and keeping a name going, and it concentrates on the genealogy. And a, a husband is provided, and a child is provided, and, and, and no longer is she under this level of shame, but in fact, she is re- restored. And through her genealogy, we get to King David and eventually Christ. But we see this throughout. Singles were generally marginalized by society and the religion. The pressure to marry was huge. Like being single, barrenness also brought a level of shame. Again, because as God's people, the way the kingdom grew, the way the people of God grew was through childbirth. And so much of the Old Testament leaves us with this idea that singleness wasn't even an option because you can't have children and expand the people of God. It was shameful, as was barrenness. In church, unfortunately, I believe that many of us are still stuck in some ways in this style of thinking. We have some holes. We have an incomplete theology of singleness. We don't even realize it often, but we compare marriage and singleness, and we have these biases, and that's why we hear these phrases fly around like, well, dear... There's still hope for you. (laughs) Oh, when you eventually get married, you'll understand. See, the assumption when those words are, are spoken is that as a single, you are not complete. You are ignorant to things until you get married. Today, we want to complete our theology of singleness. And even in the Old Testament, we begin to get these glimpses of something different of the the ability to have an actual eternal eternal inheritance without having children. And and to paint a little picture of this, I want you to put yourself in the position of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. You see, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, he's a person who's not going to have any children, but he's in a position of power in this time on earth. He's he's in charge of the queen's treasury. And we see this God-fearing man, well-respected, powerful guy, God-fearer goes to Jerusalem on the pilgrimage, and we know on the way back, he's reading a scroll. And he's reading this scroll, and we know that he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he's reading Isaiah 53, and it's talking about this Messiah. And he's trying to understand what it's saying. And I, I think part of what probably is confusing him as he reads it 
and this is part of it here, is this concept. No one cared that he died without descendants. This is a true prophetic word about Christ who came, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down. Oh, can we go back real quick? But he was struck down for the rebellion of many people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. I think that, that this man is sitting there saying, what, what? I don't understand this. This Messiah that's gonna come is, is not gonna have any descendants? That's weird. And yet he's gonna have many descendants? How is this possible? And yet then we know the story and Philip suddenly appears out in the middle of this desert road and says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, no, I don't understand what, what I'm reading. And, and Philip explains it to him. He leads him to a, a faith in the Messiah, in the Christ who had come and fulfilled the prophetic word. And he blesses him and he baptizes him. And I just imagine the eunuch gets back in, into his chariot or whatever, however he's traveling back to Ethiopia, and he moves on. But I'm assuming he probably pulls the scroll back out and continues reading the words of the prophet Isaiah in a new context with a new understanding. And he just reads a little further down to what we have in our word of God today is Isaiah 56. And this is what he reads. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs, those who cannot procreate but turn their lives into a unique service instead of marriage, who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. I believe that was almost prophesied just for this man. I believe that he read that and said, oh my goodness, my name will be carried on? This is more than I ever imagined. And I believe joy fell over him. And I know that he took the word of God back to Ethiopia because if you know anything about church history, one of the earliest churches was in Ethiopia. It was big, it was strong, and the church in Ethiopia is still strong today. But what I want you to see there is that there's this, this moment, this picture, this foreshadowing that there is something more. The kingdom of God expands. The people of God could expand in different ways than just childbirth. But then Christ comes. And he upends the whole thing. Everything changes when Christ comes. Major shift happens. Family and offspring are still central, but they're not the all in all. See, all of a sudden when Christ comes, now the kingdom of God, now the people of God expand, no longer through childbirth, no longer through procreation, but they expand. The kingdom expands because people start to make disciples. The kingdom all of a sudden expands because we have a creator God who pursued you and pursued me and continues to do so. And he uses us and he allows us to, to, to be spiritual mothers and fathers and create spiritual sons and daughters and create a lasting eternal inheritance. Everything changes. When Christ appoints the 72 in Luke 10, he doesn't tell them, go out, get married, have lots of kids so that the kingdom of God gets bigger. He goes out and he says, the harvest is ready. The workers are few. We need to send out workers. We need to make disciples because this is now how the kingdom of God will expand and grow. And it's totally different than it was in the Old Testament. Everything changed. So you see, suddenly the single man, the single woman, the couple that hasn't been able to have children, the dad who has three natural kids, they can all be fathers and mothers. They can all father eternal children, disciples, descendants in the kingdom of God. 
My friend Sundar Krishnan, a pastor in Toronto who we've had the privilege to have come and speak here in Salem, says this. Marriage is temporary and points to Christ and his bride. Now, if this is the case, there is a staggering implication for singlehood in that this is, and that is single people can now have a spiritual children and can contribute to the building of a far more important family of God because God builds his family through spiritual regeneration in the relationship with Jesus. Marriage is no longer essential for the task of building the family of God and having and raising these spiritual children who belong to the more foundational and fundamental, important, and permanent family. It's true. And so there's a lot more uh, intelligent than I am, but that seems like a long, you know, run-on sentence, right? Is it just me? (laughs) (laughs) But the truth of what he's saying there is so powerful. It's powerful. Add to this, add to this, the fact that Jesus is single. Paul never married. And their words on this topic are quite clear as well. Jesus makes it very clear that that we grow and we become part of the family of God, not not by physical procreation, but by spiritual regeneration, by being born again. We see that when he talks to Nicodemus in, in John 3. You need to be born again into this new family. Paul in Galatians 3 makes it clear to us that it's no longer about who you descend from. It's not your genealogy that's, not, that's important. It's not who your parents are that it's important. It's faith in Christ. He says the real children of Abraham in Galatians 3, the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Elsewhere, Paul goes even more intense with this. And a lot of us look at this and say, Paul is a pretty extreme guy when he talked about singleness. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. But I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. And we think this is pretty intense, but he's just echoing the words of Christ in Matthew 19. So what he says, some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone who accepts this, accept it. This summer, we have the privilege of welcoming back some international workers here that we have sent out. And I just want to highlight two of them today because these are incredible international workers of ours who have accepted this call spoken of here by Christ. They're coming back in a season of refreshment, but they've been called to the nations Debbie Vick from Thailand will be here soon, and she'll be around for the next year. And Iris, who serves in a remote and resistant part of Asia, is here this weekend. These two incredible single women have parented many spiritual sons and daughters, and their inheritance is an eternal one. And there's many others that are ministering here in Salem who have understood that their singleness, in that they are whole and complete, and they are making disciples, leading families to faith, and building an eternal inheritance. We celebrate them today. So what are Paul and Jesus saying here? When someone becomes a child of God, they receive their inheritance. They receive their place in the kingdom of God. Not because of their lineage, not because of who their parents are, but through faith in Christ, being born again. What does this mean? It means that singles have an advantage. Singles have an advantage. There's no disadvantage in pursuing their call and in becoming spiritual parents in the kingdom of God. 
Gone is the social shame of the Old Testament, which is now replaced with the great liberty and freedom since Christ has come. And so with this biblical narrative understood, with the beginnings of a new theology of singleness shared, I want to talk about how to apply this to our lives. I want to start by speaking to you singles who are here today and then move on to those of you who are here today who are married. And I want to end by talking and giving a charge to us collectively. First, to the singles that are here today. You have been blessed. In a sense, you have been blessed and you have an opportunity to use your status as worship. I'm not saying that you should abandon all your desires for marriage. If you still have those desires, I want you to continue to pursue that. But I'm encouraging you not to put your call on hold. I'm I'm encouraging you not to put your desire to make disciples on hold. But with that being said, can I just say, singleness is hard. Those of you that have never been married, those of you that are divorced, those of you that are widowed, singleness is hard. Loneliness and sexual temptation are real feelings that you likely struggle with. You are battling. It's not easy, and today we recognize that. That loneliness is real. And the church should be a place where that loneliness doesn't happen as much. After all, we're a family. But often it can be the loneliest place of all. I had a couple of people tell me this week that their most difficult hour with regards to loneliness of the week is the week right after church ends or the hour right after church ends. The benediction ends, and you wonder if an invite for lunch or brunch will come your way. Or you get the courage up to make an invite or two, but it doesn't pan out. And suddenly the invasion of thoughts of loneliness and defeat come. I'm sorry. It is hard. And while you try not to complain, the truth is that we are your family, And we, the church, don't always make this easy. One blogger I wrote said, many churches are family-centered. And while this purpose aligns well with the American dream, it does little to welcome those of us who don't fit the same mold. And And what happens when you no longer fit the family mold? Widows and widowers, divorced singles, single parents, lifelong singles, and so on. What does happen? Even here at Salem Alliance, I feel that we don't often get this one right. And so let me just pause for just a moment as a leader here. Singles, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not apologizing for having Marriage Emphasis Month or incredible programming for kids and youth. What I'm apologizing for is not celebrating and empowering the singles among us better for at times giving it lip service but not action. In our leadership, we want to commit to the singles here today that singleness will not be an afterthought in the planning of our retreats and conferences and special activities and and writing sermon illustrations and topics. Not only will those of us in leadership begin to listen better through the lens of singles in our family, but we will make more room at the leadership table for you. We want to empower and promote the singles serving among us. There is work to be done, and we've begun that journey. Singles, many of you also carry wounds from comments and things that people have said to you, even people in your family here in our church. I've titled this section of my sermon, Breaking Off Stupid Words That Have Been Spoken. And because that's what they are. And I want to share with you some of those. 
Some of the words that have been shared with me by dear brothers and sisters in the faith. While I do this, marrieds, would you listen carefully? Because in ignorance, like me, you may have spoken some of these words in the past. First one. If singles were simply to abandon their desire for a relationship, the right person would come along. It's spoken. Implicit in this statement is this attitude that singleness is not wholeness or godliness. This idea that you must become a member of a couple to really experience God in true joy. Implicit is the idea that being single is lesser than being married. To those of you who have had that word spoken of over you, I declare that singleness is wholeness and you are complete and whole just the way you are. Second one. Well, don't you consider yourself married to Jesus? Really? Look, theologically, I get why someone might say something like that. Ephesians 5 does have this implication. It's got this beautiful analogy of how, how, how marriage, divine marriage, is, uh, or earthly marriage is a reflection of divine marriage between Christ and his church. I, I get it. But we're taking this analogy and trying to put it on a, on a certain group among us, and that doesn't work. And then just honestly, the whole concept of being married to Jesus is kind of weird. It's kind of weird. More importantly, more importantly, that's likely what you not, didn't need to hear from us. It's not what you needed to hear from us. And so those of you that have heard that, I declare over you that Jesus is enough, but that he created you and you are normal to have feelings of loneliness and frustration about your current status. Those feelings are justified. I ask spirit, Comforter to come and help you navigate. I declare that we collectively are the bride of Christ in Jesus. And there is wholeness, peace, and fullness in relationship. A third one. You should be happy. Singleness is a gift. To an extent, it is. And I hope I've broken down that in some ways theologically for you today. The why and the how. However, for some of you, it's a gift you didn't ask for. It's a gift that you wish you could return. <laughs> Truth be told, I love this section right here. <laughs> I love you ladies. You know that. It's a gift we want to return. I imagine you've heard this saying before, but that what was behind it wasn't a heart of empathy or empowerment or compassion. It was more of a viewpoint of you need to settle in and accept this reality and find contentment. To you, I pray this blessing. If the Lord hasn't taken away a desire to find a partner, keep asking. But in the meantime, utilize this season for the Lord. But keep asking and take your desires to God. Final stupid word. For, the, for those of you that had a married friend, that in a stressful season of their relationship said these words to you, you're lucky, life is easier single. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't imagine the difficult struggle that you are in. I can't imagine the unmet expectations that you face every day. Your life is hard. And so I pray that the desires of your heart are given to you by our Heavenly Father. 
Yes, it is a gift to be single. That's what I'm proposing today. But just as it is a gift to be married. But I hope you don't hear me saying that this should in any way diminish your desire for a spouse, for a partner, your feelings of frustration, that you don't have someone to share physical and emotional intimacy the way those of us who married do is real. Our goal is to recognize your wholeness, to recognize your struggles this morning, to release and empower you to live, to lead, and to make disciples. And so, singles in the room, I'm going to ask you to stand even though you don't want to stand. Even though it's super awkward, I'm going to ask you to stand and receive a short blessing. Thank you. So please stand. Singles, in the name of Jesus, I bless you. I declare that you are whole. I declare that you are complete, and there is room at the table for you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Marrieds, it's your turn, and yes, you're going to stand too. (laughs) Marrieds, a couple things, ways to apply this. First, check yourself. Check yourself. You don't have to stand yet. I'm sorry. I will have you stand. (laughs) Wow. You guys were like anxious. You're ready for that blessing, but first... First, I'm actually coming for you a little bit. So here we go. I I encourage you to check yourself. Do you have an Old Testament view of singleness that says singleness is second best? What is your view of the singles in your social network? Are there any? Second, admit that singleness is complex and you know little to nothing about it. It's an author and a speaker, Christina Cleveland, and I want to just read what she has to say on this because she says it well. A lot of people seem to think that singleness is to marriage as junior varsity is to varsity. As a result, as a result, married people sometimes mistakenly believe that they know something about singleness when in fact they don't. Singleness isn't junior varsity version of marriage. It's an entirely different sport. And if you haven't played it, you haven't mastered it. The average marrying age is 29.8 years old for men and 26.9 for women. If you got married before these ages, then it makes sense to acknowledge that your experience as a single adult is below average. In other words, you don't know a lot about singleness. This is a call for humility. Like marriage, singleness is complex. The challenges and joys of singleness are equal to but different than the challenges and joys of marriage. And a third thing, marrieds, learn from the singles around you. Single people have faced certain things that married people have not and vice versa. Value that, experience that, The church is a richer place when we recognize our diversity. It's a richer place when we realize that we need the input and counsel of people with varied experiences, including those who are single. I stand here and I tell you that my life is richer because of the number of single friends and family that I have. In getting to do life with them, I see things in new ways and understand struggles and empathy raises. 
And so now, those of you who are married, would you stand? We'd like to bless you. Those of you who are married here today, in the name of Jesus, I bless you with new levels of humility, with new levels to be able to understand and empower and empathize and include and serve and receive from and learn from those in our body that are single. I bless you with incredible marriages that include those who are single around us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. And a final short charge to us all. In Acts, in Acts, the gospel is going forth and many people are coming to faith. But all types of relational walls disintegrate. Because when the gospel comes, goes forth, we see persecution. And a lot of people are kicked out of their families, of their nuclear families. They're kicked out. And then they get baptized. They get baptized to identify with what Christ has done. And they get baptized into a new family, literally into a new family. And we see in the early church that they did this so well. They adopted one another into the church family. And they would take them in and care for them as their own. And life was shared together in incredible ways. And I believe they are an example for us today. And so the charge that I give to all of us is we need to pursue one another because we need each other. Because when we pursue one another, it reflects the love of God to the community around us. We should look for and pursue opportunities to serve one another, but not just serve one another, to simply be together. And so singles, I challenge you to start inviting marrieds and open up your life to them. Invite them to the park. Invite them to coffee. Invite them to your house. Families, invite singles into your home. Feed them. Hear their stories. Do life with them. We will all be richer and blessed as a result. Let's pray. Jesus, we celebrate the diversity that we have in this church. We celebrate the fact that there are many singles and many marrieds that are here worshiping together in spirit and in truth today. We celebrate the way your word goes forth now. We celebrate that the people of God expand because disciples are made. And so I release courage over this body today to make disciples. I release courage over those who are married and those who are single to become spiritual mothers and fathers to people in our city so that our city will become a city at peace with God in new and powerful ways. I release comfort and blessing now in Jesus' name, amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.